Welcome. This is Women Behind Wool, a podcast introducing you to the female face of the Australian wool industry. Mum and Dad were always like, go and create your, to all of us, go and create your own career and go and make your own life before you come back or, you know, if you're going to come back, go and do that. So I think I'm 29 and that's been the sort of driving force is, okay, go and go and pursue what you're interested in and go and build a life so that you can have projects and income away from Haddenrig as well, given what we know that how volatile it can be. This week's guests are Sal and Liv Faulkner from Haddon Rigg uh, Merino Starden Station in Warren, New South Wales. And um, we really wanted to get Sal and Liv on because they have such a unique story in terms of um, their involvement in the past of the Australian wool industry. Haddon Rigg's been a very influential stud and one of the few that um, is still family owned after all this time. And the way they're looking towards the future with um, Liv planning to go home one day to um, help run things and and using her skills in agribusiness and her knowledge and experience um, to take the stud and the family property into the next century. I thought that this chat was number one so fun but also so um inspiring because just to hear the youth of Liv and her view on how things will go in the future is as you said in the interview really exciting it's just she's an incredible person in the industry and I'm sure she's not alone what I also love about this chat is that it's just so huge um we've titled it the women behind um the empire of Haddon Rigg because they yeah, they, their history is huge. The the workforce behind what they they did in the past and what they do now is really big and they are so influential. And there's women at the helm, um, which is, is great. It's very mm. exciting. Yeah, that's what I love from the chat too, that um, throughout history they've always had influential women involved in Haddon Rigg, be it part of the family or people that were working there. And... Um, their roles have always been celebrated and, you know, they, they comment in the interview that um, having four Faulkner girls, no sons, was never an issue inside their family. You know, outsiders might have said that, oh, you know, there'll, there'll be no son to run the property in the future. But um, in their family, they've always celebrated the roles of women in the business. Yeah, so here is their story. And just a little word before we do get started. Um, There's a little bit of interference with some of the mics in this chat, but um, I don't think it takes away from what they're saying and hope you guys enjoy it as much as we do. Yes, it um, it was was started uh, by a group of early pastoralists in um, the early part of the 19th century, enormous unfenced run, purchased by the Faulkner family, the eldest son of the Faulkner family who started in the Riverina at Bunnock and uh, made their money initially on the goldfields um, by having stores. Their eldest son came to Haddenrig, bought it in 1916 and then um, started to fence it and uh, put new innovation and started to to really, really hone in on breeding the, the merinos based on the um, Pepin um, merino, 
with successive excellent selection of, of the team, of the human team um, that they've maintained and still continue to maintain in, in breeding and selection and uh, preparation and livestock management. That's uh, has made Haddon Rigg one of, one of the leading merino studs in Australia with, with influence internationally as well as throughout Australia, yes. So it was established in 1882 and then Frank Faulkner, our closest Faulkner that started it, came north from Bunnock in 1916. So I, yeah. we had a hundred years of the Faulkner family about 10 years ago um, and now it's probably at about 110. You're what fourth generation live, are you, to go back onto the place? I think I'm fourth or fifth. The men had children later, so it's... <laughs> which is a huge achievement I mean if you think there's not many um businesses in Australia that um as onto the fourth generation and still going especially businesses that have to deal with droughts flooding rains wool market crashes all those sorts of things I, I think that's been the um sort of philosophy behind how to survive is trying to look at what the challenges are going to be in the next 10 to 20 years and and precede them before they get there and adapt um, to try and survive. And yeah, I think that's been a, an interesting thing that we'll probably discuss today. And what I've learned a lot from mum and dad is trying to, what's going to happen, what's going to hit us, how do we, how do we prepare for it, whether it's climate change or lack of labour availability or um, changes in demand for wool or other commodities, how do you sort of meet it? Mm. Ali, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Haddon Rigg and how it's run and the contribution that, that women have had over the years, um, how did you come into the picture? How did you meet George? I met him just in Sydney just before he was having a a big week of um, ram sales and uh, he was looking for some help to help his housekeeper so I went up for the week to help be the slave you know doing the washing and the clearing the table and painting the front gate and washing the noses of the rams and uh, and then um, we had a very romantic courtship where he chased me around Australia and persuaded me to well, after I'd gone back to England come back and help him it was a long it seems like a long time ago <laughs> But, uh, good. Had you moved to Australia or you were just no, travelling around? I was still, I was the typical backpacker, you know, who goes and marries the sheep farmer. So it was a bit of a cliche. Oh, I love it. So what, do, what, were, your, what were your impressions when you went to help out before the sale? Oh, I'd never worked so hard in my life. You know? And uh, it was like going to a cowboy film. The, the bookkeeper was on a stool with a massive ledger and almost a quill. Not, you know, one of those roundy, roundy <laughs> telephones and and just endless, endless fields. But I'd been, when I was a child, I had an aunt who came out to Australia and she tried always wanted to go out back, you know, being my, I really I didn't want to stay in the city. I wanted to go out and be and explore it. So it was, was everything I thought of. When I first got there, it seemed like another century, which was only in the, earth, in the early 80s. And I'd worked in um, I'd worked in the city, in London and in Sydney, you know, for companies like IBM, and uh, and, and I'd seen the evolution of of technology, communication technology, firsthand. So really, literally, when I got there, it was ten years before the first even normal telephone arrived, and then and then the computers 
you know, five years after that. So it was like being at the, it's always been like being at the cusp of the new technology throughout the time I've been in Australia. You know, we were, when I got there, my husband was fighting to get the um, test results for the, for the wool to be accepted or even looked at, you know, and, and we always sort of worked together as a team to try and use, find out what the new useful technologies were and then to introduce them and to make them useful and, and as a tool for people, but there was quite a lot of resistance. And I think it's just because it's quite a traditional industry and, um, you know, God bless them, they're doing a marvelous job at the time. And then within five years, of course, they've adopted all the technology, you know, so it was, it was, it was interesting. And now, you know, we're still, we've only just got mobile phones there that worked about 10 years ago. And we still haven't got very good internet coverage. So we're still behind the eight ball, you know, but, we're still, but we still manage to maintain a presence in the modern world as we have been, yeah. And tell me how many people sort of were around Haddon Rig at when you sort of, when you first arrived there? Was it just you and the team or were there, I imagine it was a huge operation. It was a huge operation and we had, uh, we had like 16, there would have been 16 jackaroos when I got there. And now we've got four and they were all, I just remember them being terribly hot, but then I was only 24. Um, <laughs> and you know, they were like, probably, you know, the farming side was very small, but there would have been a team of eight people to look after the 16 jackaroos and the homestead and, the, you know, and uh, there's a lot less people now, but, but the people who are there have been there for some 20, 30 years already, you know what I mean? So it's, it's been a wonderful people place. What did you have to do to look after them? Oh, well, I, because I was young and George and I were young, we were sort of the same age as all the young, now we're the oldies. So we, and it was quite hierarchical when I got there, you know, the owners, they used to have the jackaroos for dinner at the house once a week. And uh, so I loved having everyone around all the time with the children growing up. And there were always people coming in, clients would come for the whole week to stay. We'd have two sittings for lunch, two sittings for dinner. They'd stay overnight. They bring their families. Um, and now, you know, we're, we're making sandwiches and sending them up to the woolshed. And the people haven't got the time or the staff to leave their places. It's usually just them running the places. It's changed a great deal. So you have to still maintain a presence at the, and relationship with the, with the field days and with the sales that we have. But from our point of view, unless you make the concerted effort to actually go and see all the clients in their in their world and their farms, you know, it's quite difficult to maintain a relationship other than once or twice a year. And tell me, Sal, when you talk about the history of it, it sounds like mostly men, like jackaroos, not jillaroos. You know, the the clients and classes that were coming in was it all men? And have you seen? Were there any um, stand other than you and the girls? Any standout women in the history pages of Haddon Rig? Oh, yeah, there have been very many standout pages. They just don't get very many pages written about. Um, the original um, Faulkner woman who married the Irish chap who came out to the goldfields, she actually ran all the business and uh, used to have the money bag clutched to her chest in the tent with a dagger in the other hand. And they, from that goldfields business, they then went and bought parcel properties all over the place. And the first Faulkner to come here, Frank, his, his wife was, um, was, because he was politically uh, influential in, in agriculture in Australia, they maintained an enormous house in Sydney 
Um, so she would do all the entertaining, but she also worked with, to encourage a lot of culture and, and supported artists and things. And George, called Ethel, and then George's mother, um, Pauline, because her husband, George Senior, died so young, when George was so young, he was in his 50s, she then was on the board and uh, she was a, a very, very well-renowned equestrian herself in her own right. But she she went through some, she took the company through some serious droughts in the 60s um, and, you know, downturns in economies um, to to maintain it for her son, who I then subsequently married when he's in his 20, you know, late 20s. So, yeah, the women have been, women have been intrinsic. And it's interesting because I've come in you know, I, I've been a cleaner and I've worked as a waitress. And so the women that I've encountered on the farm itself and and also running, helping run the properties who come and buy the rand, they are the backbone. They are, they do all, they do the most work um, and they're usually running the, all the books. Um, they're running, um, and they're running the sheep. They're out in the paddocks and uh, mustering and helping and doing with the farming, you know, they're, they're the ones running the homes, even the home fires and the children. So, you yeah, know, women have played an enormous role. And my children, my daughters, um, have played a big role at Haddon Rigg since they first arrived. You know, they, they uh, so we've, we've, we've never really, and, and talk about Gillaroos, our, one of our first Gillaroos is now, she's actually married to our stud manager, Andy McLean, Rachel, and she was an outstanding Gillaroo. So, no, it's and on the in, in the shearing world, you know, on the board, they're not just the wool classes and the rouseabouts, they're actually the owners and the managers and you know, as well as the cooks. So uh, it's thank goodness it's um it's the women have played an enormous role, but it's quite interesting. When we were we were in the nineties, we was responding to the downturn of the merino um, price and decided to start a wool marketing cooperative with our with our clients. Which George um, said, "Well, it's your baby. You know, you you can take the lead on that." And uh, so, whatever the most the leading agents at the time came to lunch, and George said, "Yes, that's Sally's baby, and uh, you know, we're trying to track through the provenance of wool from from the field to the to the shelf on the retail side." And the guy walked off, and he said, "So, so who's actually running that rig?" And uh, and I just I, I got furious, but George laughed. He said, "They're never going to get it. You know, they're never going to get it." <laughs> so so I think things have changed a great deal. Thank Kevin. You know now we've got our girls are on the board and they're absolutely interested and they know how to run a business and they're passionate about wool. So I I think it's very exciting that people um, with women and men taking an equal role. Various aspects. So, um, Sal, what was the name of Frank's wife? The first Frank was married to Elizabeth Baisley, mm -hmm. and uh, she was—I think she was 16 when uh, he married her. And it was almost—you know—they were on the goldfields. Her father said, "Better marry her because I can't protect her on my own." And then the next was it? Paul, is Pauline? She was married to. Um, she's my mother-in-law, but she died before I arrived on the scene. She was a weir from, um, from, yes. And she ran it for about 25 years between my dad being about seven and 28 or 20 years. Yeah. And I just said the other thing about women on that property is that like, yes, 
before about 20 years ago, the men were doing all the practical work, but like any business where relationships are key, I'd say the success of it from what I've observed is that it has such a community feel and the clients are looked after so well and the, you know, the, they, all the couples that are there really do operate as a team with the women, you know, either in the paddocks as well or they're cooking or they're doing admin, they work in the office. Definitely from a statistical point of view, looks like it's been predominantly men, but from an actual character feel and what it's like on the ground, it's very much teams of, of women and men and doing a lot behind the scenes. Yeah, so what you're saying is that um, while you might not see pictures of these women in the, or even their names written in the history books, actually at Haddon Ring they were valued mm. um, for, for, for their contribution. Absolutely. Yeah. And a particularly important one I would say is Barbie Appleyard, mum, don't you reckon, Absolutely. in the last 20 years? Well, no longer because she looked after all the, she looked after all everybody. And you think about our office manager Paula at the moment. She looks after everybody and everything. And, and we've been very, very fortunate with all the people we've had. They Hadenrig's success is basically down to the people. Tell me about Barbie. So one of the um station hands is called Ron Appleyard and it was probably 60 years ago and he came and started working on the place and he was really young and his wife Barbie sort of became one of the cornerstones of the stud operation as mum was trying to feed all of these people and like she was the laundress she was the laundress she was the laundress when mum first got there but then they started running this whole hospitality um business side business as well as being the backbone of looking after all these clients and stud reps and classes and everyone that was always filling all the homes accommodation in the house when I was a kid and in the in the house paddock and so I just remember her and you mum and Chrissy just pretty much being the backbone of largely how the stud operated because because we just had such a high turnover of you know um, pipeline of workers and jackaroos and people always staying and yeah I, I just remember her being very important you'd probably be able to say more than me mum on that well it was interesting because my father was visiting from England and uh, he said you need you need a right hand man so he said you know you flat out he said and I said well I know it's very difficult to find people and he said he said that Barb Appleyard down at the Jackaroos doing all the laundry. He said, he said, she's got much more capacity than that. Why don't you ask her if she'll come up and be the housekeeper? I said, oh my goodness, I don't know about having a housekeeper. He said, he said, well, if there's one thing you need, it's some staff. So then I asked her and she said, oh, I'd love to. So then she came up and then and she just helped me in every front. You know, she's well, she got to the point that she told me I had to wear lipstick every time I went to town <laughs> and help me with the children. And yeah, I was very lucky. It was it was a very, very busy time. I mean, it was the height of, I don't know, it was when we were changing the property to mixed farming and we were working, we were working really, really hard. And yeah, Barbara, we are a beautiful person. Yeah, lovely. You know, it's interesting. I was going to ask you both um, whether you ever felt... I guess, daunted stepping into um, or growing up in an operation with so much history and whether you felt as women that um, it might not have been your place or you didn't know if you can take it on. But after hearing all these stories, 
you've always had so many influential women as part of the Haddon Rigg story. I guess, Liv, for you coming into it, like there'd be no question about um, that you'd have a place there and, and that, that your abilities would fit there. It's an interesting question because there's sort of been two counter-contradicting forces. Like mum and dad have always been like, absolutely, you guys can do anything that you want of course you'll be running businesses of course you'll be you know starting businesses and taking them on and you'll have these big lives and and just there was no sort of limits in terms of what they expected of us and what we expected for ourselves but given that agriculture is such a male dominated industry and the sheep industry specifically and being one of four girls in a family with all these managing directors previously like we'd get really disparaging comments and still do like, oh, your poor father, what is he going to do with four girls? And like, oh, that must be really hard for your dad having four girls. And it's so offensive because you're like, we're perfectly capable human beings, like perfectly capable. And it's, you know, it's just the legacy of that male dominated superiority and ideology from 100 years ago is still so rampant in the bush and like there are so many women taking on the businesses like B Litchfield down at Hazeldean and you know lots and lots of our family friends where the women go back and are, are running it by themselves or either in partnership with their husband which they always were by the way but not being acknowledged for it as you guys would know so I think there's a part of you that's like you excited to go and do it and to you know and to take on the challenge and and prove that women can do it and can run these things and been an interesting conversation since we were kids about what women can do and what they expect to do for themselves and kudos to mum and dad for giving us all the support we need. Yeah, absolutely. So that even if um, from an outsider's point of view, they'd say that a woman couldn't do it, but you guys always had that within your own family, knowing very well that you could and had the support of mum and dad. That's lovely. Yeah. It's because also we're lucky. We're at a scale. We're at a scale where um, we, if you need brute force, which is always what they said that you know farming, you needed you need men to be able to push up the sheep. And I, and I have to say that the sheep have got a lot bigger. I know for myself, I, I, I find it difficult trying to lift a lamb into a cradle. You know, they are pretty. And seven hundredth lamb. You know, like. So, and that's probably also because I'm getting older. It's not, it's not just a physical uh, exercise running a, running a farming business. It is a business, you know, and you run them, you, run, you have to run it as a business and having capability in, in the paddock. Well, a practical knowledge in the paddock, you can look at pasture, you know, the new technologies, um, but also having the nows to run the business and budget. And uh, that's really what it's all about. I think in terms of the history as well, like, you said, do you feel pressure regarding the history? I think like the last 10 years or for 20 years, a lot of those big family studs, you know, have sold to corporates or they change or they absolve the stud. And I think we have grown up with such a love and a passion for the wool, like the, the actual trying to perfect this product, which is such a cool endeavor in terms of, yes, we've been trying to do it for a hundred years and we'll keep trying and responding to what the market wants, but also creating a product that we can believe in and stand behind and that strive for excellence. Like, I think that is such a, I, I just find it such a cool endeavor and such a interesting area of work to be doing that in any, in any, for any commodity or for any product. And so I think 
going forward, it's like, yes, there is history, but that probably can work in Haddon Riggs, like against Haddon Riggs, because people will think, you know, the old boys just selling Merino Rams, like, and so part of what we want to do is how do we reimagine this and take it into the future as a dynamic, evolving, you know, tech-based, sustainability-minded company. And in, par- in partnership with the, with the existing growers, in partnership with them to help yeah. them go forward with us. That's been the main thing of the stud aspect as well. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and obviously, as you say, we do a lot of projects in partnership with AWI and wool growers and that sort of thing. And as mum says, it's sharing that knowledge and the outputs of the trials, whether it's trying to do mulesing clips instead of mulesing or trying a different shearing, shearing shed design you and know schools. animal husbandry schools that sort of thing is how can we share that with the this big network that we have by virtue of being having a strong client base um so that you lift what do they say rising tide lifts all boats trying to really share what the stuff that we do and and learn from other people as well like gosh we've got so much to learn in terms of all, all different sorts of things, sheep management and pasture management, that sort of thing. I think that has been something that farming has lacked is that is that what's happening over the fence. Like so many farmers are doing so many cool, innovative technologies. And yes, they're shared on Twitter, but how, how, mo- how much more can we get the industry talking to each other and us included? And, the, and there's so much opportunity for grazers now with the you know, the, with the, for, particularly for merinos, with wool and meat prices being excellent and the opportunities, but also from the carbon markets, you know, we're, we're just about to get our, get the property carbon um, baseline benchmarked. Yeah, benchmarked. And, um, you know, that's going to be a huge, huge part of the industry in the future. Um, and we're looking at the manufacturing. I've just been listening to some of your women and wool, the high wool. Um, with the fully automated scars, you know, it could be possible that you bring them back into Australia because it was the uneconomical aspect that drove them away. So it's, I think it's going to be interesting. What absolutely has been driving me nuts, I've, you know, I've watched what, what, how they're marketing, how AWI is marketing our world. What seems to be absolutely not touched is the... Um, the sustainability of it and, and the fact that every time a plastic piece of clothing is washed in a machine, which of course it has to be washed every day, um, all those plastic fibres are washing into our oceans. It, and, the, and the shops, the retailers, they themselves don't care what the products are made of, what their clothing is made of. So, for, and let alone it being explained to the consumer who is so knowledgeable in you know, all their healthy foods that they're eating, how things are grown, how animals are managed. The, the fact that they have no idea that this throwaway fashion that they're buying is just, is just causing problems in the, exacerbating and helping cause problems in the ocean and the environment. I mean, I think that is a story that really could be told. Yeah, absolutely. I find that a lot with Lady Kate, that obviously the people that buy from me and follow me are already you know, we're preaching to the choir, but mm. um, when you talk to other people, it, so much of it comes down to cost, you know, what they're yeah. prepared to pay for a jumper versus what I can make it for using really good quality wool. Mm. And the more that we get the word out there um, from, you know, our grassroots level and up at the industry level with AWI and stuff, the more people that are buying it, then the more, you know, 
you get economies of scale and it becomes cheaper to produce and you can then offer it to more people. So I feel like um, it's really important to just keep talking it, keep spreading the word, keep, you know, pushing people to try wool and buy wool and then um, and soon it will become available to everyone. And I think there's a market, there's an industry call to really push that biodegradability and the, as mum says, the lack of plastic, like, there's so much more it could be done in baby wear, in sportswear, clothing for older generations that need warmth and insulation, let alone industrial uses like buses and trains and stuff in, in our key exporting markets. Like I think it, there's definitely potential to grow those based on the fact that you don't have to wash it as much, that it doesn't smell, doesn't age. And the energy like. and the energy yeah, required to maintain it. You know, like mm. the, the next to skin... The next to skin foundation layers that um, that that you can find made of wool. You're not heating up the water. You're not generating the energy to maintain it. You know, it actually, as you say, it breathes and doesn't take so much water and electricity to look after it. Yeah. I think what's been interesting to observe in Australia is that, like, you look at the major commercial industries in agriculture like cotton and dryland farming and that sort of thing and the research and innovation that's gone into the technology and infrastructure surrounding those industries has been so immense in the last you know 20 40 years and now wool is making money and yes I know we have industry bodies and stuff like that but where the capital will flow to actually make the industry grow and operate better to combat things like shearing issues um you know processing and manufacturing costs automating those you know how to get how to get wool into everyday wear that can be washable in an easier way how to turn broad wool into finer fabrics through processing um, and blending and blending and blending exactly and and turning wool into like you know they're doing faux fur with wool now they're doing shoes that sort of thing like i think waterproof um fireproof fireproof yeah yeah so i think there's a lot of there's a lot of r&d and innovation to come and hopefully because it's making money you'll start seeing that um flow back in and and in our r&d institutions and yeah that's what i'm anticipating I love this conversation. It's so interesting because I think year on year on year you do see that it's we're getting we are getting there with the acknowledgement of wool and what it can do in a sustainable sense. And it's exciting to try and hypothesize, I think, about when the um, crescendo moment's going to be, when it all everyone suddenly goes, oh my gosh. Mm. And I think it's getting closer. Of course, it always is. But and just by observing the two of you and this conversation between the four of us, um, there's just so much knowledge in the in the Zoom room. <laughs> um, but I wonder between you, Liv, and your sisters and you, Sal, have you always been happy being that um, sort of not being the face of it and being working behind the scenes? Not to say that not to say that that's any less of a role, but just not being the the face of it and the and the leader, I suppose. I'm, I'm going to have my life as a backseat driver written on my, uh, if I write an autobiography. Um, <laughs> I think, I think um, when we were growing up, it was in, when the children were growing up in Australia, unlike in England where really literally, unless you've got a title or, you know, you're royal, no one cares, or you're 
a celebrity. In Australia, when the children were growing up, there, was, there were people like Women's Weekly wanting to take photographs of the children. And, uh, you know, it was absurd. So I ducked out very early and I'm very happy to be behind the scenes. But if I, if I wanted to say something, then my husband George would always, he'd just embrace what I had to say. He didn't have to come out of my mouth. It often came out of his mouth. And I wrote most of his speeches and uh, et cetera, et cetera. No, it suited me down to the ground. But Olivia, will be, I hope that she'll be very happy to be up front and central. I think mum and dad were always like, go and create your, to all of us, go and create your own career and go and make your own life before you come back or you know if you're going to come back go and do that so I think I'm 29 and that's been the sort of driving force is okay go and go and pursue what you're interested in and go and build a life so that you can have projects and income away from Haddon Rig as well given what we know that how volatile it can be and also for your own self sense of self-worth um and to bring the information back to the and business. to bring it back into the mm, business I'm so glad you put it like that, Sal, not about the women behind wool, but that you said that, um, you know, if you want to say something, you've always said it through George and he's, you know, been happy to kind of be the mouthpiece because that would be the arrangement I imagine and has been throughout history. And, um, and, and so that we're just trying to shine a light on the women who have been in that place, but also the fact that you're showing that you were comfortable with that is wonderful too, that um, it's, yeah, it, it, that it, it was a, a workable arrangement between you two. And um, sometimes you can say, oh, you know, the women were there always, they make all the, all the decisions and things like that, but perhaps that's how they've been happy to contribute, not being the front runner. Well, there's always so much more to, um, there's so much, more that we're involved in, you know, we've really got time to go and stand there with our left hip thrust out looking fabulous, you know. That's right. We're usually, <laughs> we're usually, we're usually cleaning loops, you know. <laughs> uh, running the empire with the um, bottle of Harpic in the left hand. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, Liv, can I ask, so... Um, we talked before about you, um, the different careers and, and jobs that you've had and bringing information back to the farm. Have you kind of sought out um, a career that, you know, with that in mind that you wanted to work in something that you would be able to bring back or is it just something that you gravitate towards because it's what you're interested in? Uh, definitely both. So I studied economics and agriculture at uni, went into funds management and politics and like drought policy and water policy and that was really interesting but hectic and then I thought oh KPMG they've got a food and ag um, team and they work on really interesting things and that will be really good from a skills perspective like budgeting and finance and deal structuring and market development and business strategy and looking at different looking at different industries and how to grow businesses and and it's been really fantastic um so yeah definitely definitely probably would have worked in this area anyway even if I wasn't um didn't have hadn't ring in the back of my mind because I really like it also probably unconsciously shaped the jobs I've taken Grace in particular our second daughter um she she has also moved in her career um towards agriculture on a on a big scale and she's also pursued two master's degrees and um, one of which currently is all about 
the seed bank and, um, and systems of distribution globally uh, for um, famine and uh, and for you know big broad big big thinking. So um, I think that agriculture and agricultural beginnings has been the catalyst for their interest and then for their subsequent and also their work ethic. You know their fathers. Well, I was saying you let them stay in bed for a few days and they came home. Two, two days. <laughs> Mum would say, you can, when we'd get back from boarding school and uni, my dad would be like, right, you're all up at six, you're with the jackaroos. This is from when we were like 10 or nine, <laughs> younger. And my mum, because we'd be so tired from boarding school, would be like, you have to give them two days when they first get back to have a sleep in and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah. Great holiday. So their so their work ethic and also you know having a having a strong male who's just challenged his children regardless of their male or female you know it's just just challenged them encouraged them that's been very important as well. Sal, what was it that took you about sheep and wool initially? Well, it was interesting. I when I I grew up in a sailing village in England and I was surrounded by practical. A really, a really big grip on the real things. And when I first came out to the farm, I was, it was just having lived in London and being away from that lovely village feel, I really, really loved the honesty and the integrity of the world that was there. All the people, they looked straight into you as a person. And what the wool was such a beautiful, such a beautiful fibre, you know, it's, it's resonant of everything real in the world. Like, like clean water, like the tree, like all the things that I find that I hold dear and the good person and kindness. And it's just, it's, it's in one of those worlds. And it's a very specialised world. And I, and I found it fascinating. I found it was like something tangible to hold on to that you felt to be contributing to the world through, you know. I, I really enjoyed it more than I worked in advertising and all sorts of sort of shallow things in the, um, but this was a real thing, and I still regard it like that. And as does uh, as do my girls. So um, you know, and and George, Moore, his real love, I think, is the land first, and then wool. And I love I love living out in that powerful land. But it's the wool that is so beautiful. You know, when the feasts are thrown, and then when you feel when you see the beautiful luster in the crimp, and you know, it, it is just a beautiful thing. Yeah, I love that. It's one thing that I think we come back to in every single podcast we've had is that people fall in love with wool. It's so emotive, the the way that only a natural fibre can be, and especially when you're seeing it as a raw product um, and then you know what that takes to convert it into the final product. It's um, I defy anyone not to fall in love with it once you know the history, the the, provenance behind it. Mm. Liv, listening to you talk, it this is going to sound so cliche, it makes me really excited for the future of the wool industry because all the things you're talking about, I mean, you're clearly passionate, but your perspective is modern and it's also feminine. You know, you're talking about understanding things and working with things as opposed to just the traditional approach of I'm producing this, you'll buy someone will buy it type thing. And Sal, mm-hmm. does it make you so proud hearing Liv talk about it? Yes, it certainly does. And it's um yeah, I, I, I'll, and I'll just work as hard as I can to help, you know, the girls and the future. Uh, it makes me very proud. They, they they've always made me very proud. 
but dad and I do biff about things. It should be. <laughs> like every time I'm like, oh, let's put more grazing country in and let's convert paddocks back to natural pastures. This is more in my idealistic uni days. And he would be like, no, like, you know, dry land farming is making us this. And it's it's always balancing that, um, you know, mm. ethical vent against this, this company that lives on in very tough country sometimes. And how do we actually keep it? going um and it involves tough decisions and diametrically opposed opinions mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know we're educated in different times and we've had different career experiences but as ever I think diversity in decision making probably leads to a better result and what, and what really leads to a better result is a healthy relationship with your bank yes hmm. at the end of the day um Gosh, it's impressive just hearing, going into more detail about how these kind of businesses run. Yeah, and I hope that people appreciate getting that insight and hearing more about it. So thanks so much, Liv and Sal, for telling us a bit about, about your story and about Haddon Rig. Well, thank you very much. And well done, girls. It's a very good podcast. It's a good enterprise. Yes, thanks very much, Sky. Thanks, Penn. It's been so fun to chat to you and agree with mum it's just such a fantastic podcast and the more we can talk about and celebrate wool and the women behind it and next to it the better so thanks very much thank you for listening to another episode of women behind wool we hope you're enjoying these stories and um and we'd love for you to share them with your friends and and let us know on instagram if you've been listening and if you've enjoyed it you can find us at women behind wool Um, You can also read more about some of our guests and the Women Behind Wool project in the June issue of Australian Women's Weekly on sale May 19th. Um, So please do have a read, join us on Instagram um, and give us your feedback. We'd love to hear what you think.